0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: you're listening to the economist asks i'm anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking how to find humor in difficult days no one is safe from the dagger sharp pen of armando Yannucci. The renowned satirist skewered the hapless British political class in The Thick of It, roasted Washington in Veep, and reduced the Kremlin to a cringeworthy caricature in The Death of Stalin.
0: All right, comrades, now that we're quarret, I propose we call a doctor. All the best doctors are in the gulag. Or dead. Yes, yes, because they tried to kill the boss. So any doctor still in Moscow is not a good doctor.
1: The Glaswegian son of Italian immigrants, Yenucci, pushes his biting comedy to the outer edges, cringes and curses in liberal measures. Not even the Earth's atmosphere can contain him. He's jetted off to outer space for his latest show, HBO's Avenue 5, set on a spaceship.
0: Rev, what are NASA saying? Is NASA saying? Is it is or are? Yes. What is they saying? No, No, that sounds all wrong. I sound like an idiot.
1: When coronavirus lockdowns pulled the plug on his TV and film ventures, Giannucci was itching to vent his frustrations. And he found inspiration in a past scholarly passion, the mock-epic poems of the 17th-century writer John Milton Pandemonium is Yanucci's take on how Britain handled the pandemic and it's published this month. But the insights and barbs travel far beyond his native country. So in the face of a global crisis, how does he make light out of the darkest situations? Armando Yanucci, welcome to The Economist Asks. Again, you're a return guest.
0: Yes, nice to be back.
1: Last year, you also gave an interview, this time to The Economist's 1843 magazine. And it was about your love of John Milton, the 17th century English writer and his epic poem Paradise Lost. And you told us, we are reminded by one of the editors, that as much as you loved it, you couldn't make an adaptation out of it. Well, now you have just uh, published your own remake, if such a thing is possible, uh, for an epic poem. Can we take some credit
0: It's always good to give a magazine called The Economist credit. Yes, I mean, although I thought I could never adapt or visualize Paradise Lost, because it is about immeasurable things like good and evil and time and space and eternity. And that poem has been sitting around in my head for the last 30 or so years. So when I sat down quite unexpectedly to write something about the last 18 months, I suppose it was no surprise that something, something sort of inspired by that poem came out.
1: Before we talk a bit more about the poem, I do want to take you back to a time before you became the searing satirist you were known as and the pen behind those hit political shows, The Thick of It and Veep. And at one point, I think you had a different calling. You wanted to be a priest.
0: Yes, ever so briefly, I think. <laughs> when I was about 13, 14. You know, when you're that age, everything is very black and white, isn't it? Everything is very intense. And I suppose being brought up in a very sort of Catholic background and education and so on, I suppose it was no surprise I thought that. But, I mean, I have to say, I didn't entertain it for that long. By the time of like 16, 17, you know, the idea of taking a vow of poverty, chastity and obedience... Was something that, in the end, didn't appeal. I think the poverty I could possibly cope with in that. I'm not really into gadgets and luxury stuff and so on. But chastity and obedience, I'm not sure I, I would have survived.
1: This must be a bit of a sort of repeat question, really, for satirists. But does the politics also come from growing up in a household where political? ideas and the claims and competing claims of politicians were being put to the test? Or does that just uh, come more from the years that we have as stroppy students and beginning to unpack the world around us and who holds the power?
0: I mean, we weren't a very political household, but you know, one thing, my my father died just before I, I went to university But during the Second World War, when he was about 15, 16, 17, he joined the partisans and fought against the fascists and against Mussolini. He actually wrote at one point, well, quite young, for an anti-fascist newspaper. He never discussed it with us, sadly, because I would have been fascinated to know that. But I think it was just too raw and traumatic for him. But it did make me appreciate that in a democracy, in a thriving democracy, if you can call it thriving, We are blessed in being able to say and and do what we like and write what we like. Whereas not so long ago, there were millions of us who grew up under governments where if you said or wrote the wrong thing, you could be killed. You know, that's not that long ago and not that far away.
1: Let's turn to Pandemonium. It's the title of your new epic poem about Britain's handling of COVID-19. But I think it would be fair to say there are also lots of echoes. Of course, this is... Uh, the ultimate, in a a very sad way, global story. What made you choose to tackle it in the form of a mock heroic poem? Which, (laughs) as I say, of the many artists and and writers who've turned their attention to COVID, I think this one is a bit of a first.
0: I'll take that as a compliment. (laughs) It was all quite unexpected in that nothing was planned. You know, as lockdown happened early last year, I felt like, as with everyone else, like a bystander. I wasn't thinking, oh, I can use this or I'll, I'll, I'll respond to this in some way creatively. I just wanted to know what the hell was going on, what was happening. And I felt that combination of, that I think we all felt of intimacy in that there we were with our kind of loved ones and family, you know, spending many <laughs> endless days together, but also isolation that sense of vulnerability, that fear as well. You know, how bad was this going to be? And I think as we went into the summer, I started to doodle, I suppose, with words, which I kind of tend to do when I'm I'm either at a loose end or just trying to figure something out. I write kind of stray bits of verse. Sometimes it's just to explore rhythm or rhyme or, or imagery. And I found myself... Starting at the start of this poem, really, the first four or five lines of it just sort of fell out. Let's hear a flavour of it. So the poem begins, Say, heaving muse, what catalogue of restraints and luckless lockdowns fell upon the unwilling world, accompanied by pain and stifled shouts of family grief. To the world's wisest company of brethren, in stately halls and candelabra chambers, flush at their desks with freshest data brought an end to that wailing noise and comfort to those begging for release. Tell mighty wit how the highest in forethought and that tremendous plus, the science, saw off our panic and globed vexation until a drape of calmness furled around the earth and beckoned a new and greater normal into each life for which we give plenty gratitude and pay willingly for the victory triumph merited by these wisest gods
1: you can absolutely hear that kind of rhythm coursing through it as as well actually even particularly when you you read it out loud
0: milton starts paradise lost appealing to the muses to to help him describe the triumph of first satan's fall and the fall of man and and how Christ comes along and saves us all so so he starts off with this lofty summary of his of his huge theme and I, maybe it was because just to just to answer the point about why this form i didn't i knew i didn't want to reduce the events to something silly and small and pathetic and trivial i kind of thought that if there was comedy to be had the comedy may arise from taking the events and then comparing them to gods and heroes of old and and something far grander. And How do our current heroes stand up against that kind of comparison?
1: And you spent three years writing a doctoral thesis about religious language in Milton's Paradise Lost. Am I right about that? Did you ever finish it?
0: You say I spent three years. I mean, I was there for three years trying to write the thing, but I spent more and more time doing comedy. And it was actually the point where... I realized that the opening lines to Paradise Lost of Man's First Disobedience and the Fruit of That Forbidden Tree have the same rhythm scheme to the theme tune to The Flintstones of Man's First Disobedience and the Fruit of That Forbidden Tree that I guessed that I should possibly follow the comedy career and not the academic one. So at that point, I kind of put down my typewriter and my pen and thought, this probably isn't for me.
1: No Wilma comes in at the end, looking harassed and, and bringing a big sort of bone with her for dinner.
0: Yes, Wilma is Eve in Paradise Lost, I think.
1: The real life British political figures you deal with when you really get going into the sort of satirical guts of your writing here is the former health secretary, Matt Hancock. You deal with him, you deal with Boris Johnson, you deal with his former advisor, Dominic Cummings, also now gone from the scene in somewhat dramatic circumstances. But you turn them into gods. We'll come on to what you feel about them and the way you represent them in a moment. But gods, hmm, interesting.
0: Yes, I start by explaining that, you know, our central hero in the poem is Orbis Rex, which is Latin for world king. But the gods have decided that as Orbis Rex moves among us on Earth, that title might be too frightening so they take the word orbis and rearrange the letters to boris which is seen as a much more earthly and human uh form for the word boris himself the real boris that is he enjoys not just the classical heritage you know he, he will always refer to or indeed drop in a latinate phrase or a greek phrase ancient greek phrase But he's very performative in how his essence is one of performance, really. You know, his his job, I think, as he sees it, is to get out there in front of the cameras and be Boris, which is to to be positive, to be joyful, to play around with words and, and crack jokes. But at the same time, to be very, very serious in a Churchillian way. Although whenever he tries to be Churchill, I can see a little smile in his and a little twinkle in his eyes as if he's, he knows he's doing a Churchill so I thought that was a kind of an appropriate comparison to make
1: Is it angry satire in the way that the thick of it, it feels like it, it, it's very hot paced, this was a uh, great satire on the British political class, of course being a uh, political journalist for, for 20 years was sort of meat and, meet and drink to me but, but the way you've described Boris Johnson there, uh, it was
0: almost more in like a sort of frenemy. I think the the poem was written in anger and sadness. But what I didn't want to do was write a polemic, actually. I didn't want to do a kind of A equals good, B equals bad, because I thought what was more important was to try and do, you know, my take on the pandemic eventually will come in about three or four years' time when we've worked out what this pandemic is and, and what it's done to us. I wanted more to do a kind of almost like a snapshot of of where we as a country are emotionally which is a mixture of confusion and anger and frustration, but also willing them to to succeed in a way because we we want this to go away. (laughs) So I I wanted to try and capture that because I'm acutely aware of wanting to balance, if if there's comedy, the comedy comes from what's being described inside the portals of Whitehall. But the consequences of those decisions, I think, have an effect countrywide in, in millions of individual households that I didn't want to make fun of, I wanted to capture in a much more raw and hopefully honest way, the the combination of sadness and fury and confusion and calm, you know, the, all these mixed emotions that I think we all went through. And that for me was actually much more important and, and much more of a challenge to try and get down, try and articulate You know, the gags about politicians I can do, you know, I know I can do that, but I didn't necessarily want to be doing more of that. I wanted to find a slightly larger stage, but one which would then be people by more than the politicians, but by the by the people they serve, really.
1: And that balance is something that interested me because it's very funny. But I did wonder whether the comedy in Pandemonium might be seen to undermine the severity and the pain and the grief that so many people have felt over the past year and how much you tussled with that when you were writing?
0: Well, I was very much aware and, I, and I'd gone through the experience of making The Death of Stalin about two or three years ago, where similarly, we were dealing with comic goings on within the Kremlin, but the consequences had a devastating effect on millions and millions of people. And and it is, I think, important to to work that balance that the comedy serves the tragedy and the tragedy serves the comedy in that you don't want the comedy to undermine the tragedy. and You don't want the tragedy to dampen the comedy in that what you're doing is balancing an an account of absurdity or confusion in a funny way, but with very real consequences.
1: I should say you weren't just writing this, so to speak, from a kind of Olympian distance because you did have your own experience with losing your mother during the, the pandemic.
0: Yes. I mean, it wasn't too COVID, but it was very early on in the lockdown. She was 94 and in a care home. And she, like many others, I think, when the lockdown started, we know that lots of people in care homes just shut down, just deteriorated very suddenly. We as a family had to do the goodbyes on FaceTime and a very, very restricted funeral that not everyone could come to. And this thing, this event was having, I think, on every household, you know, in different ways. So everyone in the end will have their own story to tell.
1: And there is a flash of hope from Milton himself, isn't there, in Paradise Lost? This horror will grow mild, this
0: darkness light. Yes, except that's words quoted by Satan. (laughs) I did want to put something positive, even though it was spoken by Satan.
1: Let's talk a bit more about the state of satire more broadly at the moment. And there is an argument that, that recent... Politics uh, and, as you pointed out, the desire for the more disruptive and sometimes even the extremes of politics. And very transatlantic audience to the show, indeed, us often global. We'll we'll be seeing that reflected in authoritarian leaders around the world and in in the phenomenon of the Trump presidency. Some people also think that puts the nail in the coffin of satire, uh, satirizing of Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump is actually quite difficult because they can often outdo the imagination or the ready political imagination, or that it is still, you know, it's just kind of bad taste. What's your take on that?
0: Well, I wouldn't argue for anything not to be the subject of comedy, but uh, I think the problem is when, when I was making, say, The Thick of It, that was at a time when it was understood there were certain rules to how politicians behaved and shows like The Thick of It maybe showed one or two politicians bent the rules, twisted the rules, occasionally broke the rules. But if politicians come along now and say there are no rules, or I can change the rules, you know, if Donald Trump, as he said, I could shoot a guy in the face in Fifth Avenue and still get elected, or, or as we saw recently in the UK government, the Minister for Europe, I think it was, stood up and said, we have broken international law, but only in a limited and specific way. You know, when when politicians are finding that it's easier not only to bend the rules, but to break them, that they're kind of getting away with it, that they're not being... They're not being held to account.
1: The political journalist in me on a couple of those actually wants to argue back with you and say, so oh on a minute, you know. But actually I won't, because I think it's a bit of a British British rabbit hole. I think what I'm thinking more is is the sense and I think you referred to it once around something like VEEP, and could there be an equivalent for the Trump era or the post-Trump era, or possibly the resurrection of the Trump era uh, at the moment. Who knows? And uh, if I remember right, you, you had doubts about whether that was either possible or, or right it's when you say you, everything is within the scope of satire but does something simply outdo it
0: yes no i mean the point i was going to make is that these people are their own entertainers are they you know i, I, I talked about boris johnson being you know very performative and trump you know trump enjoys an audience and and that's when he's in his element but also if if, if they are saying that the rules don't exist anymore and also that things that we all know that happened didn't happen I did win the election. There was no assault on Congress on January 6th. And and people start standing up and supporting that. You're getting into a world where you're saying, it's not so much what happened, it's what you believe happened that is real. Any satire that that tries to diminish that or show it being even sillier, I think is going to suffer. But that doesn't mean to say that there's no, you know, you can't be funny about it or you can't be constructively comedic about it. I just think there's now got to be new ways of showing it. And, And I think also you will get people... I mean, what social media has given us is the ability to be funny instantly. Uh, uh, You know, the bigger picture, doing a a funny version of of the last year or the last 18 months or the last four years or so on. I think we're going to have to find different formats now. It isn't necessarily about doing, you know, a funny drama showing behind the scenes where people fictionalise what's been going on. Because... We know that now that what's been going on is already demented, so I don't think we're getting getting anything new from from a dramatization of that
1: It struck me that you made your name in a very distinctive way that that you approach comedy by putting the funniest of gags into some very serious scenarios and the confidence and the judgment actually that you need to to do that. We can wince, but we can't entirely want to sort of scream and leave the room, or even worse, change the channel. But is there such a thing as going too far? And you know, do you feel that you've ever written anything or depicted anything that in hindsight you wouldn't do?
0: That's interesting. I I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I don't kind of look back, but I'm sure if I looked at stuff from 20 years ago, or dare I say it, 30 years ago, <laughs> there'd probably be jokes in there or lines or even use of language that I think, oh, I wouldn't say that now. Because, because language and... Tastes and values change. I'm sure if I watched stuff from 20 years ago and so on, there'd be stuff there. I think, oh, I would never write that now.
1: I thought you were. For a moment, I thought you were going to confess to what it was.
0: Well, no, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. But but I think it's also, you know, hopefully you get better the more you do. So it's it's not just uh, in terms of does this work anymore, but you, you'd want to improve it. You'd want to play with it. So. Uh, and my philosophy has always been when you do a project is once it's done, it's done. Don't go back. Don't don't think about it. Don't play with it. Don't try and rework it. Don't bring out a director's cut. Move on and try and move on to something completely different from what you've just done.
1: There is, however, perhaps a more contested space at the moment. And that's about that clash between freedom of speech, including comedic speech uh, and Sensitivities, which can become, as we know, very angry, and and I wondered how you do you feel that you are sometimes could be one step away from outraging a particular interest group or group of protesters who who could cause you difficulties, or you kind of feel that we this is the time we're in, and uh, you know we we sort of swim in the waters around us socially, culturally.
0: I cannot think about it because I sort of feel I know what it is that I find funny. I've never actually set out to, even though something like The Think of It was you know, full of swearing and so on, that wasn't there to shock. It was there to add authenticity. It's just the more research I did into the very macho atmosphere of you know, the spin doctors in the Blair Brown era, really, the more I realized that for it to be real, it would have to have lots of swearing. But then... Swearing is very boring, so we have to make the swearing interesting. Really, I was going
1: to say you're you're credited with introducing a lot of phrases into the English language, most of which we're not going to use right now. But the one that does come come back, which you can say in front of the five year old, is omnishambles shambles, which uh, is basically what it sounds like, isn't it? It's a, it's a massive. Cluster, oops, Omni Shambles. And it was chosen by the OED, the dictionary, published the Oxford English Dictionary, as the word of the year in 2012. And I think it even crossed the pond to the US in the derivative of the Romney Shambles. Is that your favourite, or are you going to leave us perhaps with a, another coinage you'd like to have in your own Milton epitaph?
0: Oh, heavens. I can't take credit for Omni Shambles myself. It was Tony Roach, one of our writers, who came up with it. But uh, if we've um, bequeathed to the English language a new word, then my work here is done.
1: <laughs> it's no small thing, is it? And we just just a, a thought on the pandemic because it's where we we started. And with Pandemonium, your poem, in a way, a sort of tribute to finding some spirit and finding some forms of green shoots and, and likeness even in in the, the the darkest times do you feel like that and and you know what do you go to for the pick-me-up comedy or literature apart from your own poem which you're not
0: allowed to choose well I I wouldn't sit down and think oh let, let, let's cheer myself up I'll read my own poem <laughs> no Dickens is great I've still have it you know having Talked about Dickens, I realised I've still to do Our Mutual Friend, which everyone tells me is wonderful, so I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that. I picked up from a secondhand bookshop a novel written in the 1950s by an English writer called John Wayne, so not the cowboy, and it's his first, it was his first novel. It's called Hurry On Down, and it's hysterically funny. It's kind of Dickensian, but set in this sort of 1950s North South divide and class system. And someone from a working class background trying to get in with who he perceives are the middle classes. So it's full of all that kind of angst. I'm all in favor of of finding writers who, you know, maybe had their moment of fame as they were writing and first published, but somehow over the years have disappeared And, and just bringing them back because there's just so much good writing out there.
1: So it's a, a John Wayne Dickensian possible follow-up to the personal history of David Copperfield.
0: Well, I'm, you know, I'm halfway through it, but it's uh, it's very promising.
1: Armando Iannucci, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Our pleasure.
1: And we'd love to know what you think when everything feels like an omni-shambles. What's your pick-me-up comedy? Do send me your suggestions, podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. Last week, I asked for your comments on the value of an apprenticeship versus a university degree after my conversation with you and Blair and a pluses to everyone who wrote in, especially Firpo Carr and Amy Wang Huber. Both of them wondered if degree alternatives would finally convince the job market. Let's see. Weigh in on our debate. Our inbox is always open. If you've not listened to that show yet, do have a listen now. You can find the episode in your podcast feed. And for more from The Economist, do head over to our website, where you can find out what's plunged France into Gallic gloom and why the announcement of US China talks doesn't herald a thaw in relations. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups.